Hello and welcome to episode 6 of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm freelance writer and 11th member of the Wu-Tang Clan, Giles Goff. And I'm filmmaker and answer to all of your problems, Phil Coleman. And during this period of Corona-geddon, we'll be trying to hold off the desire to bake <laughs> industrial levels of banana bread by sticking our film geek robes on to analyse the faith parallels in the Harry Potter series, with a specific look at the Deathly Hallows. We'll be looking at the correlation between mudbloods and Samaritans, and why people who think that Harry Potter promotes the occult probably need a nice sit-down where they can cool off with a cup of tea and a biscuit. Phil, which Hogwarts house are you in? I took the Pottermore quiz a while back, because Elise wanted to know, and it turns out I'm in Slytherin, and I was quite disappointed by that. That is, you're not though. It's... I know. I don't think I am either. But apparently, like... the gods of Pottermore have spoken, mm. and I'm in the green robes. And I don't understand why. There is with some young people these days. Slytherin is cool. I'm not okay with that. No, that's, that's, I, I think that needs to be wrong. burnt in a fire. I'm quite conflicted on this point because when I first went on Pottermore, I'm fairly certain I got sorted into Gryffindor, and for me, that felt about right. But in the intervening years, I think they changed the format, and when I took the quiz again, I ended up in Raven. And frankly, I'm not sure how to feel about that. I mean, how how accurate is this quiz? That's what I want to know. Because I wonder mm, if I take it again, yeah. would I be in Slytherin? So I might t- I might test that yeah. after this podcast. <laughs> I, th- I think it's going to have a lot of impact on a lot of people's marriages. You know, I mean, um, maybe even mine. Do you want to tell us your facts that you've got about the Harry Potter series? Oh, yes. Harry Potter is a British-American film series based on the eponymous novels by author J.K. Rowling. Production took place over 10 years, with the main story arc following Harry Potter's quest to overcome his arch-enemy Lord Voldemort. Four directors worked on the series. Chris Columbus, Alfonso Cuaron, Mike Newell, and David Yates. Michael Goldenberg wrote the screenplay for Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. The remaining films, however, in the rest of the series, was written, all written by Steve Cloves. Late in 1990, film producer David Heyman's London offices received a copy of the first book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, was relegated to a low-priority bookshelf, where it was discovered by a secretary who read it and gave it to Heyman with a positive review. Heyman's enthusiasm led to Rowling's 1999 sale of the film rights for the first four Harry Potter books to Warner Brothers. So many times where it's somebody's secretary or assistant or receptionist or something like that can be responsible for discovering these absolute gems. And thank goodness for that, because imagine a world mm-hmm. without Harry Potter and the behemoth it is now. It's unthinkable. I, I, I wake up in a cold yeah. sweat thinking about it. Alan Rickman was handpicked to play Snape by J.K. Rowling and received special instructions from her about his character. Rowling even provided him with vital details about Snape's backstory not revealed until the final novel, which hadn't been written at that point. So the Hogwarts motto, Draco Dormiens Nunquam Titillandus, <laughs> means never tickle a sleeping dragon. <laughs> How good is that? And it is good advice. I've always avoided dragons. Every time I've mm-hmm. seen one. I mean, of course, being Welsh, I mean, trying to avoid them is damn near impossible. I mean, for the first sort of few years of my life, we went to school on a dragon, you know, until <laughs> it was down the legislation. The last name Dumbledore means bumblebee in Old English. Also, according to the Factoid Trivia Show QI in 2003, the word muggle existed in the early to mid-1900s as a jazz word that was used for pot smokers. <laughs> 
Can you yeah. imagine if we still use that today? Considering <laughs> Harry Potter. <laughs> like, look at that bunch of muggles over there. Yeah, yeah I like it. Yeah. The floor in the Great Hall is made of York stone. Production designer Stuart Craig had the foresight to invest a significant amount of his design budget on the stone. While this decision was questioned at the time, it proved to be a wise one, as the stone was durable enough to withstand the footsteps of hundreds of actors and actresses, as well as several camera crews over the next decade to film the entire series. It's that sort of like forward thinking that I really like in filmmaking like it's all problem solving during filming daniel radcliffe changed the screen language on robbie coltrane's mobile phone to turkish coltrane, <laughs> coltrane had to hang phone on, the head on, me, sorry go. let me get out you could just imagine little, tiny little daniel radcliffe just there just kind of like this will get him <laughs> It's so funny. Coltrane had to phone hair designer, and I might be pronouncing this wrong, Aethne Fennell's Turkish father in order to find out the Turkish for change language. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just wonderful. Anyway, J.K. Rowling previously stated that the T in Voldemort is silent, as it is in the French word for death. More. Jim Dale pronounced it so in the US audiobooks that came before the release of the, of the movie, where the characters pronounced the T. After this, Dale changed his audiobook pronunciation accordingly. Not being a French speaker, I did not know that Mort was meant to be pronounced like that, so... Yeah, no, I, I did know that, but it wasn't obvious mm-hmm. to me at the time, because it was just... Voldemort, just his name, it's all one thing. I didn't think about splitting it up or anything. I wasn't looking at it linguistically. Yeah. Steve Cloves was nervous when he first met J.K. Rowling. Rowling admitted that she was really ready to hate this Steve Cloves, but recalled her initial meeting with him. The first time I met him, he said to me, you know who my favourite character is? And I thought, you're going to say Ron. I know you're going to say Ron. But he said Hermione, and I just kind of melted. Surely we're at a point in the in the course of human history now where Hermione is everybody's default favourite character. I'm absolutely wonderful. If I'm honest, I think Sirius Black is probably my favourite character, but Hermione is by far and away the most competent yes. character, I think. Also, the interesting thing is, if you remember in Philosopher's Stone, when they're trying to actually access the Philosopher's Stone, there's a logic puzzle. There's a point yes. where, where, it's, where she says, most wizards are good with the magic, but not necessarily great with the thinking skills kills or words to that effect and there's actually she's able to logic things out quite nicely i realize i've just turned logic into a verb but there we go it was gonna happen sooner <laughs> or later so let's move on daniel radcliffe was initially meant to wear green contact lenses as his eyes are blue and not oh. green like harry's are in the book but the lenses gave radcliffe extreme irritation and upon consultation mm. with jk rowling it was agreed that harry could have blue eyes you don't yeah. want your leading man to be just itching his eyes all the time <laughs> Steven Spielberg was originally approached by Warner Brothers to direct the Harry Potter series. But when he dropped out, he actually recommended M. Night Shyamalan for the project, who actually turned it down, obviously. Can you imagine an M. Night Shyamalan's Harry Potter? I think he would get the darkness absolutely spot on. He'd get that gothic sense of things, brilliant. I just think it's everything else he'd be rubbish at. Unfortunately, yeah. And I, I just don't think it's his film franchise, to be honest. Sir Alec Guinness was considered to play the role of Dumbledore, but... He died shortly before filming began. Why not hire the world's greatest space wizard to play the world's greatest mm. wizard? This is a, uh, a bone of contention with myself and uh, my wife Claire because in her head, Richard Harris is brilliant as as Dumbledore, mm-hmm. and she still she still rates him as as her favorite. Nowadays, my favorite Dumbledore is uh, Jude Law. If nothing oh. else, just for the outfits, that you know? suit. You know how good I look in a three piece suit. I, and, I mean, I was at uh, your wedding, I, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, he just looks fab in it. He 
absolutely smashes wearing a suit. In the script, the flashbacks to Voldemort killing Harry's parents were written by J.K. Rowling. The producers knew that she was the only one who knew exactly what happened. That's pretty cool. That's quite nice. In order to make the Dursley's house even more unpleasant, set decorator Stephanie McMillan deliberately sought out the ugliest furnishings possible. Just awful, aren't they? You know what I mean? Warwick Davis, who played Professor Flitwick and the first Gringotts Goblin, also provided the voice for Grip Hook, who was physically portrayed by Vern Troyer. Oh, really? So, yeah, so Vern, did, I... Vern Troyer actually did the physicality, but they actually got Warwick Davis to do the voice. I assumed that it was Warwick Davis as Grip Hook the whole way through. What fascinates me is the fact that mm. why didn't they just hire Warwick Davis, considering the man's stature yeah. and considering the role that they wanted him to play? Why didn't they just yes. hire him all the way through? I think there becomes an aspect of representation issues to consider at that point. If you imagine if you flip that onto something else and said, we've got several different black men, why don't we just get Samuel L. Jackson to play all the parts in it? <laughs> it's that That's when you start to see the problem with, with that kind of statement. In my head now, mm-hmm. I'm imagining the Avengers, but every character is played by Samuel L. Jackson. I don't... That's an alternate universe that I would actually like to see. The Chitauri wouldn't stand a chance. No, you know? it, it, uh, the Chitauri would just look and be like, actually, I've left I've left the iron on. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just going to nip back. In a bit, Loki. Bye. Bye. So today, we're going to switch up the format a little by bringing in not just a normal guest, but a guest co-host to talk to us through the faith parallels in this film. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce Claire Goff. Hi! Claire, would you like to tell people about yourself uh yeah sure so i am claire goff as you have correctly said well done um (laughs) i am giles's wife (laughs) and i'm a massive harry potter nerd so this is pretty much my ideal way to spend some time first started reading it when i was about 10 and had the classic is my hogwarts letter going to come through the post so that i don't have to go to senior school and i've never quite got over the fact that it didn't Um, my heart just broke into two (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and i've just i've just read the books a lot really all all through my life the books kind of came out as i was going through secondary school so i kind of grew up at the same time as harry Mm. grew up and i also have the audiobooks which i have listened to pretty much on a loop for at least 10 years (laughs) every time we're going to bed you can hear one of two options it's either the harry potter audiobooks or the complete unabridged Jane Eyre audiobook. <laughs> that sounds most pleasant, actually. I think <laughs> this kid is going to come out recognising Stephen Fry's voice before he recognises mine. <laughs> Quite possibly. Just make sure he's not calling Stephen Fry dad, because that opens up a whole host of issues. <laughs> <laughs> That's just unprecedented. <laughs> When I was discovering Harry Potter, I was already at university. It had already been out for a while. The films were on their way to being released that year. Uh, a friend of mine, Lottie, actually gave me the books to read. And I got to discover Harry Potter and Hogwarts at the same time as I was discovering Bangor University's main arts building, which looks a hell of a lot like Hogwarts in some places, you know? It's looks got very much like Hogwarts. Really ancient staircases and all these, all these like long halls and 
all yeah. the rest of it. Anyway, Claire, would you like to take us through Finding the Faith in the Film? Da, 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 da. I would love to. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Harry Potter and Christianity. Um, when the Harry Potter books first came out, and even a little bit now, there was much controversy in the Christian community about it. Um, much hand-wringing about fears that it promoted witchcraft and magic and the occult. Thankfully, my parents were not super worried and allowed me to read it, but I do remember some friends who actually weren't allowed to read it, and that makes me really wow. sad. <laughs> but thankfully now, people are a lot more chill about it and have realised that it's it's not going to turn a whole generation of children onto the occult. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a relief. I don't like to judge people for their personal decisions and beliefs. You know, you, you, you decide what you believe and where your lines are, but equally if you're going to criticize something i feel like you need to have at least read and understood it first i of course yeah. have zero problems judging people for their beliefs <laughs> uh i <laughs> silently judge people who don't reverse park or people who film their videos <laughs> in uh portrait mode rather than oh, landscape who oh are, that really does my head in yeah for for legal and moral reasons are the worst <laughs> i think the author beats the critic every time it is easy to look at something and take it apart and analyze it sometimes to, to rubbish it and the rest of it whereas it's really difficult to make something so i feel like criticizing harry potter you are really just developing like a little cottage industry you develop this little moral outrage and then you tell people all the reasons why it's terrible and it's horrible and all the rest of it and then people buy your books and the, the primary reason being that they don't like it is because of the overuse of magic in it yeah. but magic is used fairly heavily in the Chronicles of Narnia and yet that's not really much of an issue if you're going to try go. and take magic out of children's books then there's going to be few children's books mm -hmm. left I mean I grew up reading The Worst Witch which I absolutely loved and it's just it creates a fun world in which to have stories um, with, with the magic as a sort of surround yeah. cushion to make it more fun and interesting which I kind of think is what happens with Harry Potter yeah and I think the term witch or wizard just in general conjures up images of Halloween and mm. people boiling up frogs' legs in a big cauldron, that kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, if that's what people attribute first, then, well, there, there you go. <laughs> they're, 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 yeah. they're going to see it as a, as a negative rather than a positive. It's a delightful subculture thing that I think, for the most part, we've left in the past yeah. uh, these days. I do appreciate there are certain things about this particular issue that have some validity, but for the most part, I have very little patience for any moral outrage that's constructed just to get people's attention. Also, one of the things I love most about the Harry Potter stories is actually how it reflects the gospel <laughs> um, and some of the central teachings of Christianity which I am going to go on to now. I wasn't too keen on, on doing an episode <laughs> on Harry Potter because I couldn't see the parallels quite as strongly, but I am really looking forward to being convinced otherwise. Yeah, I love it when you acknowledge that you're wrong, sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> As I was saying, one of the things I love most about Harry Potter is its promotion of the values of love, tolerance, acceptance, justice, sacrifice, and the triumph of good over evil. And there have actually been studies conducted which showed that children who have read Harry Potter show more empathy and compassion to marginalised groups. And J.K. Rowling herself has acknowledged that the series has intentional connections to Christianity. The really obvious ones, uh, the ties to the Christian story throughout Harry Potter, the theme of sacrifice being one of them, 
loving sacrifice in the stories has a really deep power which is beyond the usual magic. The fact that Harry's mother dies to save him gives him protection from Voldemort and part of the tragedy of his life is that so many people die to protect him. His parents, Sirius, Dumbledore, Dobby, Lupin, he loses loads of people who will basically throw themselves in front of in front of the train as it were in order to protect him and finally harry makes the ultimate sacrifice too and dies to protect his friends spoiler alert he's not really dead um but if you don't know that then then it was quite a bit touch and go i remember reading the books and being like this ain't gonna end well yeah oh no i'm not ready (laughs) yeah you just have a moment of (gasps) no (laughs) don't jk i swear if you do this <laughs> yeah. yeah so obviously the, the concept of loving sacrifice as a gift to save others is pretty t- key to the gospel as well um and as the bible says in john 15 verse 13 there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends harry's sacrifice for his friends and classmates protects them from voldemort's power in the end in the same way that jesus's sacrifice protects us from death and the ramifications of sin uh, one of the parallels that i thought would be interesting to look at is the garden of gethsemane when jesus is kind of tormented and frightened when he's faced with the prospect of going to the cross um, and one of the most powerful parts of the final film and book is harry's walk into the forbidden forest when he knows that he's got to die he finds out that he's a horcrux meaning that he's got part of Voldemort's soul living in him so he has to be killed in order to finally defeat him and the long walk he takes reminds me of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he knows what has to happen but because he's human it doesn't stop him being scared or wishing there was another way out of it so that he didn't have to go through this and the portrayal of Jesus there has always helped me to realize how completely human he was his fear is so real and so normal Mm. for someone facing that kind of fate and Harry too accepts his fate he accepts that that's what he's got to do but he's still as scared as any of us would be in the same situation the book and the film differ a little bit in the book no one knows Harry's going he doesn't tell anybody he puts his invisibility cloak on and heads down there alone in the film he meets ron and hermione and tells them what he's going to do yeah in the forest harry uses the resurrection stone to sort of bring back like echoes ghost type things <laughs> um of his parents yeah. Sirius and lupin to be with him to give him the strength to do what he needs to do and jesus in the garden prays and spends time with his father and the holy spirit to give him strength to do what he's got to do but ultimately though none of his friends can help him the disciples there's not much they can do in fact they fall asleep they're incredibly unhelpful <laughs> He has to meet this death alone in the same way that but Harry has to. In the garden, he separates himself from the disciples and he is afraid and desperate. Yet when the guards come to fetch him, he doesn't fight but accepts what has to happen. And in the same way, Harry yeah. accepts his fate and doesn't lift his wand to defend himself. In mm. fact, he puts his wand in his pocket so that he's not tempted to try and fight back. We get a really visceral description of Harry's experiences in the book when he knows that he has to die. Yeah. So he managed to some extent to portray in the film as well. It describes his, his awareness of his own body and his heartbeat and the limited number of beats it's got left which is a really a really lovely and touching description heavy that's heavy it really is (laughs) Um, and in the same way the descriptions of jesus in the garden are really vivid in matthew 26 38 he says "Uh, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death and in Luke 22:44 it says being in anguish he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground and it also says in Luke that an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him which is similar to how these echoes of Harry's mm. parents strengthen him to do what he has yeah. to do 
when you explain it and you put them side by side, mm. like mm. it's very starkly clear to see parallels mm. be- between it. And it's, I think it shows just how powerful that scene is in the film. If it can remind you of like the Bible, yeah. mm. biggest yeah. story ever, yeah. you know, then it, it's got yeah. some merit, I would say. Well, yeah. it's interesting. We talk about the, um, the Garden of Gethsemane. I think it's possibly one of the most popular scenes in the entire passion story because it's this sense of like a calm before the storm Mm. and if you think about it that is a a storytelling trope that is repeated throughout pretty much all of storytelling history if you think about it like in henry v hal goes out to walk in amongst his troops the the night before the battle and we have that this sort of sense of of quiet reflection going all the way through up to even game of thrones and its last season that sense of doubt has been something that i think is always stuck with me i think a lot of christians the world over would agree with that so uh, one of the other things that i wanted to look at was the radical acceptance of outsiders Mm. as a shared theme between the gospel and the harry potter series um so like jesus's acceptance and love um for lepers tax collectors and prostitutes um all the people that would normally be very much on the outside of society (laughs) um the harry potter films and books encourage acceptance of those who are different to you muggle-born witches and wizards are often looked down on um because they're not so-called pure-blood wizards and witches hagrid is shamed for being a half-giant magical creatures such as centaurs and goblins and house elves have been persecuted by the wizarding world for centuries due to being different. Um, Lupin, uh, Remus Lupin, one of my favourite characters, is persecuted for being a werewolf. And J.K. Rowling actually said that werewolves were a metaphor for illnesses that carry stigma, such as HIV and AIDS. I totally see it, actually. I totally see it now, but that's not something I um, I would have drawn a conclusion to. Yeah, I find that really fascinating. I like that. And Harry and his friend's acceptance of Lupin can really be compared to Jesus's acceptance of lepers who were, you know, the equivalent of the day were real outcasts in society mm. um, and nobody really wanted to go near them. Right. House elves in the Harry Potter series in particular get a really raw deal. <laughs> and Hermione... They really do. They really do. <laughs> if they've got to be given a sock... Yes. <laughs> then they think, oh, thank goodness for that. Yes. You know, I've finally got a sock. Yes. Glory. You know what I mean? Just like, that's rough. Yeah. And Hermione is really passionate about freeing them from mm. the slavery that, that wizards hold them in. And one of the things that's always struck me about Jesus is his compassionate inclusion of people that others seek to exclude, particularly women. We see lots of examples of this. He speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well. He defends the woman caught in adultery. He shows love to the woman who pours um, perfume on his feet. And one of my favourites is the story of Mary and Martha, where Martha basically is getting mad at Mary for not helping her with making dinner. Although it sounds like all the disciples have descended on the house. She's like, oh my gosh, I've got to serve all these people. I'm really stressed <laughs> out. And Mary is just sitting there chatting with Jesus. It's really annoying. She should be helping me. It's not fair. <laughs> um, and I always kind of identified with that until I heard an alternative interpretation of this, um, where Mary's posture, as it's described, is she's sitting at Jesus's feet while he's speaking to her and this was a particular position that was demonstrative of a student learning from a rabbi so one interpretation of this is that Jesus was defending her right to learn from him I really love that interpretation so he's kind of saying no she doesn't have to make the dinner she can sit here and learn like a student and she has a right to do that which I love (laughs) I think that's entirely fair as well like you know if you don't have the opportunity to learn then how can you grow as a person Mm, you know faith or not and the book the the Harry Potter books are very the lines are drawn very clearly on this point 
that the good guys are the ones who are accepting and the bad guys are the ones who are prejudiced. Mm. There's some little wiggle room yeah. with characters like Ron Weasley who've always had the the privilege of, of having mm. a pure blood status and have never really examined their own prejudices but you sort of mm. see him do that throughout the course of the books. So mm. At least I think you do anyway. Yeah, you definitely do. Yeah, by the end there's that wonderful bit which is leads up to Hermione snogging him furiously mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when he's talking about defending the house elves <laughs> um, and he's kind of I, finally got to that I point. I especially like the term snogging furiously. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. there's a lot of like, that in this household. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't need to know anymore. Thank you. No, you do, and that'll be covered in our next podcast. Uh, what is this? A different podcast? Oh, or... with Jigger and Clash. <laughs> oh no! Um, I, was, I, was, the... I was a little bit disappointed actually that the the film changed that. The point where they kiss is when they've just destroyed a Horcrux, which is which is lovely. But in the books. And the reason Hermione kisses Ron <laughs> is because he talks about oh, making sure that the house elves get out safely. And I always thought that was a really lovely moment. And I was really sad that they missed that. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. so cute. We're going to have a, a separate podcast about all the things that Clara is disappointed with in the film series. And yeah. That will be 15 hours long. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't want to be one of these people that slams the film relentlessly because they do do some things really well. Some of it is great, but any <laughs> any big Harry Potter fans, um, if I say Harry did it, put your name in the Goblet of Fire, will instantly know what I mean and understand <laughs> oh, the rage oh, that I feel. Did you do that in the cinema? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Just to echo a point you said that whenever church or churches want to exclude a certain people or a subgroup and say that your God's forgiveness only goes so far, you can't be what you are. I tend to find that Jesus went wherever the excluded people mm. were. Jesus encouraged his followers, even beyond his, his death, to, to sort of go to the Gentiles, to go to the people that weren't considered worthy. And I think that's really important and a really strong message that the the books and obviously the gospel share i mean for whether you believe in god or not just be a good person you know like or or at least try your best if it doesn't come natural yeah just accept everyone there are actually even some bible verses that turn up in harry potter believe it or not the tombstone of lily and james potter uh, which we see when harry and hermione go to godric's hollow has a bible verse inscribed on it which is 1 corinthians 15 verse 26 the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Um, and this is referring to life beyond death, the fact that death is not the end. Um, and death is a big part of the Harry Potter books, apart from the fact that a lot of people die. <laughs> yeah, it is just littered with death. Yeah, that is just really like, is. oh, tripped over a bit of death again. Yeah. Great. And Dumbledore is adamant that death is not something to be feared. Um, he says that to the well-organised mind, death is but the next great adventure. Um, which is a fantastic quote. Um, but that doesn't yeah, mean that. that there isn't a great deal of anger experienced when loved ones die, naturally. Mm. At the end of the Order of the Phoenix in the Ministry of Magic, we see the place where the Department of Mysteries are studying death. And this is represented by a veil fluttering in an archway. And this, first of all, shows how thin the barrier is between this life and the next. Mm. It's, it's nothing but a, a fluttering veil. And we all remember the absolutely heartbreaking moment when Sirius falls through the veil. And Harry yeah. is convinced that at any moment he's going to reappear again. And he doesn't accept at first that he is gone. Yep. Um, yeah, it's really sad. I, <laughs> I read that 17 <laughs> years ago. 
Not ready to talk about it yet. And actually, I nope. think that's I think that is a moment that the film does really, really well. Mm. Actually, I was just about to say that I remember that part in the film because I've I've actually seen that scene recently. It's just so heartbreaking the yeah. way it just sort of goes away. It's like when you see like a lion cub go up to like their dead mum and just be like, "Get up, yeah. please." You know, it's just Thanks oh, it's awful. Film. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and you have you just have Harry just kind of screaming for him and not believing that he's mm-hmm. gone, and it is absolutely at the moment when Jesus dies, the veil in the temple is torn in two, which represents the destruction of the barrier between us and God, which is a massive moment. Phil, how familiar are you with the idea of the veil in the temple? Not as familiar as I could be. Essentially, in the, the sort of first century synagogue that they'd have in Jerusalem, there would be different sections within the temple. So if mm-hmm. you were a Gentile, you could go, let's say, this far. You know, and if you're a Jewish woman, you can go this far. And if you're a Jewish man, you can go this far. But then if you're, you can only get further if you're a priest. And then we eventually get to a certain point, a smallest bit, which wow. is the, the, the Holy of Holies, effectively, mm-hmm. where it's surrounded by a, a very thick, very heavy curtain. It would be once a year, the head priest would go into this place surrounded with this this curtain this veil they where the idea is that would be where you could experience god directly yeah essentially that that is the place where god dwells in the yeah temple. where god dwells one of the lines uh, right after jesus dies in the gospels is that the the skies turn black and the curtain in the temple or the veil in the temple is torn in two and what that signifies is that god isn't just in this small little place anymore god is everywhere effectively yeah kind of it it tears down the barrier between between people and god really so that we can speak to him directly which is awesome it reminds me of the bifrost from Thor, you know what I mean. Like that's that's the only place where you can cross from one place to another. You know what I mean. Although I imagine it's not anywhere near as neon and glitzy. Who knows? I'd like to believe it's like a disco. I mean, that's that's how most biblical interpretations of heaven are. That it, that there's a massive glitter ball, <laughs> confetti cannons going off as soon as everyone sort of gets to meet their maker. Yeah, that's no, how that's I imagined it anyway. Yeah. So beyond the veil is a phrase that actually comes from this veil that existed in the. Jewish temple kind of you know beyond the veil is is death or something super mysterious you, you don't know what it is and I think it's really interesting that JK Rowling chose a veil uh, in an archway to represent death and I wonder if she maybe got that parallel from there which mm. I think is fascinating I, I think it's safe to say that there was definitely you know like some parallels there all that really shows is that the bible and christianity exists within the harry potter world just as yeah. much as it does in us mm-hmm. and that christianity can take as much or as little impact on people's lives as it does here. Mm, Yeah, for sure. I think that's sort of grounds the Harry Potter universe a lot as well. You could just have this this fantastical story about wizards flying around on broomsticks and catching golden balls with feathers on it, but it gives you a connection, gives you a thing to grab onto to bring you into the world. Like a real world, like a belief system that the audience can sort of grab onto and just sort of like bring themselves in. Well, one thing to factor in, and this is the sort of thing that a lot of critics would say, was how does this work because there are specific references in the bible against occult and divination so how can magic and harry potter reconcile Mm -hmm. and first of all we need to reiterate for the billionth time that 
magic in these books is a story device. It is something you use yeah. to tell a story. It's fiction. It's fiction. <laughs> but the other thing yeah. I wanted to point out was that at one point, it was absolute heresy to say that the Earth revolved around the sun and to be a Christian. Those two things were absolutely irreconcilable. <laughs> so the thing I wanted to point out is that faith and our, our idea of faith can evolve. It takes a long time to do it, but it can. There are some things that are undeniable, such as the sun. So, you know, you see it every day. It's not just a light bulb. Another thing I wanted to have a little look at uh, was the depiction of the afterlife. So we see uh, in the Deathly Hallows that Harry, after sacrificing himself for those he loves, arrives clean and whole and free from all physical imperfection in delightful, clean, heaven-like version of King's Cross Station. <laughs> um, it's it's had a lick of paint. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's all it's all light and, and heavenly. Um, and he's greeted by Dumbledore with love. And this is compared with the representation of Voldemort that is there, who is this damaged, raw, pathetic little creature, which is quite disturbing, actually, which reflects yeah. the decisions he made in his life. And it just demonstrates that the choices we make have long-lasting ramifications. And what we see of Voldemort in King's Cross Station at the end of Deathly Hallows is the consequence of unrepented sin. Mm. It's interesting that the one way to put your soul back together after creating a horcrux, as explained in, in Harry Potter, is true remorse. And this aligns with the Christian message that in order to be forgiven and set free from the effects of wrongdoing, you have to truly repent of what you have done. There's two things I just wanted to, to maybe explain there, because, and I again, I'm not a theologian, I don't have the Bible verses to hand, but there's this belief that when you get to heaven, you you have a, a new body you're made completely whole and for people like myself yeah. who have long-term injuries or people who are dealing with like chronic illnesses that's always something yeah. that, that people kind of hold on to i heard that um they tune in to our podcast <laughs> up there uh, and um, and god's just he's got a few things to say he's just like no 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 guys it's, that's not how, it's like this yeah. <laughs> If you have there anything is to say, so much wrong with what I just said. I'm so sorry, <laughs> Father God. If you have anything, any issues with what we said, please let us know in the comments. <laughs> I can't imagine that. Anyway, anyway I have just a couple. Anyway, more to make. <laughs> okay. In a conversation between J.K. Rowling and Daniel Radcliffe. Rowling reveals that Albus Dumbledore is John the Baptist to Harry's Christ. And we see in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince that Dumbledore says of Harry, your blood is worth more than mine. And that shows that Dumbledore thinks Harry is the greater hero and has greater tasks ahead of him. So it's, it's a little bit tenuous, I think, but you could argue that, that Dumbledore starts the work of destroying Horcruxes and then passes the baton to Harry in the way John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus and then steps aside to make way for his greater work, which I thought was an interesting... I thought that was interesting especially that, that JK herself kind of saw it that way. In the same way that Jesus wasn't able to start his ministry until he'd been baptised by John, Harry isn't able to defeat Voldemort until he's been educated and thoroughly prepared by Dumbledore in order to do the task so i think that's a really nice parallel and i, I like that yeah. the last thing i wanted to um have a look at was the importance of choice and free will dumbledore says uh, to harry in the chamber of secrets it is not our abilities that show what we truly are it is our choices 
Um, this is when Harry is, is stressing out that he has these certain similarities to Voldemort and the sorting hat wanted to put him in Slytherin, mm-hmm. but instead he chose to be in Gryffindor. And Dumbledore says, no, that's that's the point. <laughs> you chose differently to Voldemort. <laughs> and it's not it's not the ways that you're the same. It's the way that you're different and that you, you made different choices. Um, I could definitely see why he was stressed out, though. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Good grief. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, and I know, I know in a previous episode you were discussing predestination it melted our brains. Flashbacks. <laughs> 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 you were there, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, honestly, it was. <laughs> However, <laughs> we're having flashbacks. <laughs> it's okay. Like it's an okay. arrival. Most Christians will agree <laughs> the element of choice and free will is actually really key to our faith. <laughs> You can't be forced to believe something. You have to choose. You have to make the choice. And Jesus tries to encourage people to choose the way of life, which means following him. In Harry Potter, there is the choice, as Dumbledore says, between what is right and what is easy. You can stand up against the Death Eaters and Voldemort and possibly die, or you can give in. In Matthew seven thirteen, Jesus gives the choice between entering through the narrow and the wide gate. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. In the same way, following him is not always the easy choice. Clearly, yeah. I don't need it's to be clear. here anymore. Next episode, uh, Claire will be uh, replacing <laughs> Giles. <laughs> no, I, Claire, that was really, really cool. I really Thanks. enjoyed that. Oh, Especially yeah. that last one as well. Like, yeah. It's clear. It's completely mm-hmm. clear, that distinction. Mm-hmm. Like, I've, I have actually nothing else to add other than, yes, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was fantastic and I think we're going to wrap up the Finding the Faith in the Film section there. Awesome, yeah. And I think we're going to wrap up the episode as well. Phil, have you had a great time? I always have a great time. I'm with you. Come on. Oh, you. Uh, <laughs> oh. Gosh, have you had a great time? I've had such a great time. I'm talking about Harry Potter. Why would I not yeah, have a great time? Yeah, fair point. And I always have a Absolutely. great time when you're near. Ah, so. uh, you. Oh, yeah. I'm going <laughs> to cry. Might, she might let me sleep in the house now. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Listeners, we really hope you've enjoyed yourself and we hope you tune in next week when we're going to be looking at Star Trek with a particular focus on Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. Why don't you join us? Oh, yeah. Anyway, yes. Somebody here <laughs> hasn't seen Wrath of Khan yet. I think this might be the excuse to watch it. Okay. <laughs> Have a great week and we'll see you soon. All that remains to say is Expelliarmus. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's true. Expecto Patronum. <laughs> Expecto Patronum when Guardian I did not Leviosa. expect that Patronum Wizard on! Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman Mixing by Phil Editing by Giles Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee Fact checking by Christina Stanard Good Waffle editing by Natalie Austin Tech support from Claire Goff Gordon Film is a Dask production Please rate and review unless it's one star in which case just tell Phil by sending him a howler addressed to him in the Slytherin common room under the lake